Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is Prince Philip of Serbia. Now, Prince Philip joins me on the show, and he recently became more public about his interest in Bitcoin. And actually, he's now joined Jan3, working alongside Samson. So we chat about a range of things, Bitcoin, economics, finance, and also this topic of bottom-up adoption as contrasted with top-down adoption, and what kinds of state-level adoption actually help. Are you ready for something new from the Swan Bitcoin team? Pacific Bitcoin is coming November 10th and 11th in LA, California. This is a two-day experience leading the way to a bright orange future. This is a Bitcoin-only educational and fun event with a range of Bitcoiners ranging from people like Michael Saylor, Alex Epstein, Corey Clipston, Jan Pritzker, Lynn Alden, and many others, as well as a range of events that will be there in and around that week. So make sure you come to town a bit early. So think about any friends of yours who are interested in Bitcoin and potentially you want to go to this event with them. I think this will be an excellent experience for learning about Bitcoin as well as making connections with real-world Bitcoiners. So go to PacificBitcoin.com and get your tickets with the code LAVERA. Brains.com offer a full-stack mining solution including ASIC auto-tuning firmware, farm management, and they operate the world's first mining pool. So previously known as Slush Pool, it's now known as Brains Pool. So the website for that is brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. Over there, you can search Brains OS Plus. This is firmware that you can install on your Bitcoin mining machine. Now go and check which mining models are supported, but if it is, you may be able to increase the hash rate on your Bitcoin ASICs, or you might be able to improve efficiency. You can mine on any pool, and you get 0% pool fees if you point your hash rate towards Brains Pool. Now, Brains also have a range of other content on their site, such as blog posts, which I find really interesting as well, just to learn more about energy and Bitcoin. So go and check that out. It's over at brains.com. Are you still using a plain old block explorer? Bitcoin has grown beyond a single layer into a full-fledged multi-layer ecosystem. Mempool.space is a comprehensive Bitcoin explorer that covers this ecosystem from the mempool to the blockchain to second layer networks like Liquid and recently the Lightning Network. With mempool.space, there's no need to trust a third party. It's free and open source software. You can easily host it yourself with one click on Raspberry Pi, full node distros like Umbral, Raspberry Blitz and more. For enterprises, mempool.space now offers customized mempool instances with your company's branding increased API limits, and more. Go learn more at mempool.space slash enterprise. On to the show with Prince Philip. Prince Philip, welcome to the show. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me on. And please, you can call me just Philip. Ah, okay. That's great. So yeah, I mean, it was a pleasure to meet you, uh, Philip. At, uh, I met you at uh, Bitcoin 22. And, uh, you know, it's been awesome to see you coming into the space, uh, at least more publicly. I know you maybe you were uh, more privately watching on as well uh, as well prior to that um but uh, yeah i'm curious to hear a little bit of your story i know uh you obviously you come from the royal family of serbia and yugoslavia and you know i i could imagine bitcoin might not necessarily be interesting to someone from that kind of background you know what was it for you well my background was that i first came into bitcoin first purchased bitcoin 2017 but I knew about it a few years before, but it wasn't until one of my best friends, uh, a guy called Dan, says, hey, look, look at Bitcoin. It's, uh, it's going up. Well, why do you get into it? I was like, oh, really? And he goes, what's so interesting? I asked him what's so interesting about it. He goes, oh, yeah, it's a tw- it has a 21 million cap and it solves the whole inflation thing. I was like, interesting. That's pretty much all my knowledge at that point. 
I bought it. I also bought other shit coins, as a lot of us do. <laughs> and really, for me, buying Bitcoin was also because I wanted to make money. You know, I'm I live quite an ordinary life. This is when I was living in London. I had just met my wife. She we hadn't we weren't married yet, but we married a few months later after I purchased my first Bitcoin. And I say Bitcoin, <laughs> my first Bitcoins, I guess. No Bitcoin, like singular. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Then as I started studying more about it later on, maybe going into the whole COVID thing, then I realized that, you know, because I always knew something wrong was with the world, wrong with the world. But, and I've always known that, you know, money corrupts. But then when you figure out that money is corrupt, well, money, I think really should be defined as money is Bitcoin, really. That's what pure money is. And this is what you started, I started learning more about Bitcoin. I started putting more hours into it. I got safety in the Bitcoin standard. I mean, I even uh, I was I think I was listening to uh, a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, podcasts with Gigi. I remember listening to a few of your podcasts as well. I remember uh, following Sailor, also you know Robert Breedlove's What Is Money series with Sailor. That was interesting as well. And then of course Twitter, Bitcoin Twitter was a big turning point. Just seeing the commentary that people have there, you know, some of it brilliant, some of it funny, and some of it just yeah, just great entertainment. And as right. to answer the other part of your question, as a mon, as I say, as a monarch, I'm not quite a monarch. I'm not uh, Serbia's not part of the part of the uh, part of um, part of the system. In, uh, the monarchy is not part of the system in Serbia yet. Maybe we can change that one day. But Bitcoin interests me because I've always thought, as I said, that there was something wrong with this world. I didn't know what how to um, what that really was, and I've always wanted to see what I can do to make a difference. And I live quite an ordinary life. I, I mean, I don't live in a palace. I, I, you know, I pay rent. I, uh, I have work. I have a fiat job. Well, I said I did have a fiat job. Still, I'm finishing it now. But we'll we'll talk about that later. Yeah, sure. And, um, and so you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not immune to the world's troubles, really. So I, I definitely have a, a I'm definitely have a passion to try and try and change that. And then when I figured out what Bitcoin was. And what it also means in line with uh, monarchy, um, that it, can, has, it has synergies with monarchy, then it really flipped a switch. And I thought to myself, oh, this is beautiful. This is something I want to be a part of and I want to make a difference with. And it was really a humbling moment and it really gave more meaning to my life. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think everyone comes to Bitcoin in their own way. They've got their own ideas about it. And I think it's it's also been said, it's almost like a Rorschach test, right? It's like in some ways, you sort of yep. see what you, you, you wanted to see or see what see a reflection of yourself. And I think there are definitely different angles and ways people can get into it. And I, you know, I certainly came to it from a perspective of liberty and sound money, right? Like that was basically the main thing I saw that was awesome about Bitcoin. I'm curious whether economics was one of your focuses. I know you were working in the world of finance as well. So even you know pre-Bitcoin, was that something you, you were studying? So I studied, I actually studied languages at, at university. And I, when I, after graduating, I worked, I went into finance. I mean, it's different. It's a different leap. But then I, start, I, stud, I studied finance when I joined my first um, financial company. This was back in back in London, in the city of London, back back in two thousand and six, and I gained my financial knowledge through those companies, through their under the companies, through the, the courses that they had on offer. I was going to some courses in uh, in central London, like these universities, BPP, and all these sort of professional universities, and that's where I picked up my financial knowledge. Um, 
Then the financial crisis happened and I decided to leave finance and go into hospitality management. So I went to Switzerland, Lausanne, um, the hotel school there, Ecole Hotelier de Lausanne, and went back to London to start my job in, in hotel management where I worked at the Ritz Hotel. And then I realized that's really, it's not really my passion working in hotels. I prefer to work in finance. I'm more interested about financial markets, about macroeconomics and all that. And that's, this was about 2009. And then, then I yeah got back into finance. And I'm, as I'm gaining more experience in finance, I'm realizing that this is really not really making that much sense. Just didn't feel right. I didn't feel like I, was make, it was, I had much of a purpose, what I was doing. I just it felt like, you know what I mean. It's... Uh, <laughs> To say it bluntly, yeah. I, th- I thought the whole thing was a bit of a scam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, and I, I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of aspects of finance that have been corrupted by the fact that we are using fiat currency instead. And we, you know, uh, uh, the way Mises uh, explains sound money, it's two components. It's one is freely chosen by the people, and two, it's absent intervention by the state. And so that's, yes. I think, those are the two. I guess crucial components to make something sound money now if you ask peter schiff he'll say oh see it's when you drop the gold coin and it makes a noise that's why they called it sound money and whatever but you know and you know maybe maybe that's part of where the name came from but in terms of like what defines it i think the misesian understanding of it uh certainly is more interesting also i'm curious as well like i I know if you if you've been you know reading safety uh and looking at various austrian economics and things like this i know uh, even in the Austro-libertarian world, there is discussion about this concept of is monarchy superior to democracy, right? And that that's kind of an interesting yes. <laughs> world of argumentation and um, stuff like that. I'm curious if you if you've looked into any of that, if you have any reflections on that. Actually, I'm about to read Hans Hermann Hoppe's uh, "Democracy: The God That Failed." Um, I'm, I want to read it side by side alongside with uh, um, Alex Goldstein, you know, Bitstein. <laughs> he's, determined <laughs> for, he's determined to buy me the book. So he just found his co- he just bought himself a copy. So we're going to read it side by side. Um, what I, you know, this is, look, monarchy and Bitcoins have a lot of time, uh, have a lot of uh, similarities. I mean, they, monarchies have had a historically long time horizons or, or low time preference spanning generations. You know, monarchs feel a lifelong duty to their country. Um, and compared to democracies, I guess, in contrast, politicians typically think in election days. It's really short-term thinking. You know, um, wars are expensive as well. So, you know, um, fiat politics as well, love love to get into war. And, you know, it's expensive. It's expensive under a gold standard. So monarchs are very hesitant to engage in conflict, while democracies under fiat standards are basically incentivized to engage in warfare. Printing more money is easy. <laughs> Also, the other book I need to get my hands on is Prince Hans Adams of Liechtenstein. He's written the book. It's a, it's a masterpiece, apparently. I'm ordering that as well. And it's The State in the Third Millennium, I believe. Um, and apparently he makes a compelling case for reimagining the state's role in the future. Um, this is to do with self-determination, I believe. For uh, is the, uh, Self-determination, I think, is the principle that populations cannot be coerced, but rather upon the state to make an effort to work with its citizens. And the state is, acts as a service provider, an organizer that, that serves the people and, and not, the, not the other way around. So these things, you know, if you look, I mean, I really look forward to reading these two books, but this is what I've been told when I've been uh, discussing it with, uh, with Bitstein and some other people that... Not that democracy is completely broken, but it's 
it's definitely not it's definitely not doing uh doing uh, many favors to, to parts of the world i'd say maybe with the best case for the demo- democracy would be someone like switzerland with, with the canton system but you look at other parts of the world and you're thinking to yourself you know this these other parts of the world you know canada america france germany these republics are, are definitely entering some dark days again right and i think Part of it also comes to, now I guess in right-wing circles, this gets referred to as the swamp, right? Like there's this idea that even if you elect a different leader, the system is just so corrupt that it will drive certain outcomes or that because, you know, there's just so much buildup and bloat, the system, governments become so large and so bloated that we end up with these unelected bureaucrats or technocrats who are really in charge. And they're the ones driving and dictating what's going on and perhaps you know, that's part of what we've seen is the, the chaos of the last two or three years with all the various you know, things Correct. that have gone on. It's, it's that essential group think that's really dangerous, that centralized power. It's corrupted within. And how can those few people decide what's right for, some, for millions around the world, for billions around the world? This is something that I really come to understand and learn as being very, well, unethical, but morally, incorrect, uh, morally wrong. Absolutely. And I think what we've seen as well is people who ostensibly say, oh, look, I'm here to serve you. But in reality, they're trying to make everybody else their servants. And they're not actually trying to serve the people. And in in reality, they're just trying to enrich themselves. They're trying to do deals to kind of, you know, make things happen. Um, And so I think that's really where I I really see Bitcoin is part of the answer. Maybe it's not everything. Um, I think it's a range of things. Maybe there's a certain cultural pushback. Maybe there's a certain attitude and shift in the way people view the relationship of, you know, the state and the the citizen or just the state and the people. Maybe that needs to shift as well. But I'd love to also chat a little bit about your new role. I know you're joining Samson over at Gen3. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how this came about and, uh, you know, what you're you're hoping to achieve there? Sure. I mean, I can tell you from the beginning how how I got to meet Samson was of all started in March this year when I went on to Ivan Ivanovich show with my wife. This is uh, the big, uh, Serbia's biggest talk, a late late evening talk show, uh, to, um, talk show, the like sort of the Saturday night live equivalent. To be invited on that's like a big honor. So we were really excited to go on. We met with Ivan a few days before and spoke about just to get to know each other. And he found out that I'm into, into Bitcoin. So then fast forward onto the show, we were talking, he asked me about my job, I'm there, you know, chatting away kind of boring, you know, monotonously about my job. And then he just butts in and asks, so is it time to talk about crypto? <laughs> and I just like, <laughs> took a deep breath. I was like, okay, no, it's not about crypto, it's all about Bitcoin. And that was then picked up by the Bitcoin community, it went viral on Twitter and everything. And next thing I know, I had the likes of safety and I'm chatting to people like yourself and going on to my first ever Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin podcast. My first ever podcast was um, Daniel Prince's uh, The Once Bitten Podcast. And it was, it was fantastic. And thanks to Daniel, who is really great at connecting people, we, uh, we, we, we quickly be, um, became good friends. And uh, he put me in touch with, uh, with a bunch of people, including Samson. So then, he, then, then Daniel was like, "Well, we can go to. Uh, what are your plans for uh, for beginning of April?" I was like, "Why? What's up? Well, we let's go to uh, let's go to Miami." I was like, "Oh, really?" He was yeah, yeah. We can we can uh, we can go there and um, you you know maybe meet some people and stuff. I was like, "Really? I'll get you tickets. Don't worry. We can sort that out." So he gets he sorts out tickets. We're on a plane. We go there, and uh, next thing I know, I'm meeting everybody. And then I meet with Samson, and he Samson is wanting to put me on stage on the panel to speak about uh, Bitcoin and legal tender. I'm on stage with the 
finance minister or the economic minister of El Salvador with Samson. And with Joel, he's the guy who is like the CEO, the person, the president who runs uh, Prospera. Yeah. And, and who's, who's, who's uh, mediating it is uh, the moderator is uh, Stacey Herbert. So for me, that was a little bit surreal. <laughs> and then Samson comes up to me. With, Let's have a meeting, Philip. So we sit down we're very casually. And we um, remember there's another Bitcoin with us, Andre, that was there from... from um, from Madeira. Yeah. And Samson's like, hey, Philip, uh, I'm, I'm starting a company called Jan3. It's about uh, it's about nation state adoption. And, um, and I'm thinking, I want, I want to, uh, I want to hire you. I'm, I want to recruit you. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> Literally didn't even, he's like, we didn't even talk about the terms and stuff. And I was like, well, we can talk about that later, but I'm in. <laughs> That's great to hear. Yeah. So he thought I was a great fit for that, which I hope I am. And yeah, so that so that then took off from there. We uh, we we talked a lot. We just we spoke about our terms afterwards. And next thing you know, fast forward to Riga two weekends ago, where I last saw you, and that's where it was announced publicly on on um, on the on the stage there. So that for me was a really proud moment that that that, that I came out into the Bitcoin world. Now now I'm working for a Bitcoin company, which I'm so proud to be doing. Right. And just on that point, I think it's interesting. It'll probably be interesting for listeners as well. What was your process or thought process there around, quote unquote, going public as a Bitcoiner? Because put it this way, you could just stay in the background, keep stacking sats and just kind of, you know, live two lives, let's say. What was going through your mind to sort of decide, okay, I'm out, I'm, I'm doing this publicly now? I mean, going public as a Bitcoin, I mean, it depends on, on, on the Bitcoin. I understand for developers and people really involved in that space that they want to keep a very, um, very private persona. That's totally fine. But I think it's important to stand up and go public. And I believe I'm maybe the, probably the first world to go public in support of Bitcoin. Um, so I'm proud of that, yes. But I think, I think my duty is to go orange pill more and to get them to go public. But we can work on that. I mean, it's, I think it's important that, that Bitcoin has support from p- people with high levels of business experience and credibility. I mean, people, so people enter into the Bitcoin orbit, that open their minds to it. I mean, a figure like Michael Saylor has been a great ally for Bitcoin and elevated the profile. Um, for, I mean, for mass adoption to occur, really, it's important that there's a sufficient social proof from a wider range of credible people. So, I mean, I'm covering the, the royal side. There may be some more business sides, you know, some more, um, I don't know, I can just throw it out there, people in other other actors maybe as well to get involved, you know, people in other disciplines that have uh, musicians, singers, you know, those sort of people, uh, scientists, famous scientists, you know, people like that. I I think this is really important for for, for Bitcoin and and to speed up adoption. Yeah, and I think you're totally right there. And this is one of those areas on... Twitter and discussion forums and things. I see some people say, oh, why are you guys like, as an example, there might be some politician who says something positive about Bitcoin. People might be retweeting that. And someone on Twitter will be like, oh, why are you simping for the politicians? You can't trust any of them. And I mean, here's how I'm seeing it, right? I think we have to try to grow our base of Bitcoiners. Mm -hmm. We need to grow the number of people who are into this thing. Now, whether you agree or whether you believe any politician or trust any politician, that's a different matter. But I think... From the point of view, as you as you and I were just chatting, I think it's important that more and more people see it's okay mm-hmm. to hold Bitcoin, talk about Bitcoin, to mine Bitcoin, to run a Bitcoin node, 
to run a lightning node, all of these things, it, it I think it massively helps if we can help normalize these things Correct. in the minds Correct. of the normal yeah, people. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Uh, and so then coming to this idea of, I guess, Jan 3, nation state mm-hmm. adoption, that's what Samson is talking about. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're hoping to do there and what are some of the ideas that you're looking to try to play to use to 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 drive that nation state adoption well so yes yeah, samson moved away from blockstream that he was leaving blockstream and starting jan 3 to focus on nation state adoption and that's when we talked along about uh, talked a bit about and um his the jan 3 mission is to accelerate hyper colonization so our tool is to provide um, our, our goal is to provide sorry the tools uh, so sovereign nations can adopt the Bitcoin standard, exit the oppressive, oppressive fiat debt system, and ultimately achieve true sovereignty and prosperity. I mean, look, countries who adopt Bitcoin first will have a huge advantage in the future. This is, I mean, this is like uh, what's the game theory? <laughs> my role is my role is to to engage in conversations and strategic initiatives with uh, with nation states, corporations, you know, individuals who wish to explore transitioning to a Bitcoin standard. So to talk about anything about adopting Bitcoin, any sort of way or form. Yeah, I mean, I look forward to starting conversations with with politicians with company company lead uh, CEOs with uh, monarchs as well and get the conversation going as we just talked about you know get them to sign up to uh, to, to, to download a wallet to get them to buy a little bit just to see just to get the hands dirty to see how it works and it's not too difficult I mean it's pretty easy stuff yeah understanding Bitcoin takes a long time and um, and I'm, we're all still learning but uh, the actual process of actually Downloading a wallet, buying Bitcoin, and holding it, and having your own keys is it's it takes twenty minutes in total, and for from 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 the from the go, you know, to show somebody or less. Absolutely. And so, when it comes to nation state adoption, what does that mean for you? Does that mean are we talking about legal tender laws? Are we talking about that nation state doing Bitcoin mining? Are we talking about just removal of capital gains tax laws? Uh, you know, just favorable laws? A bit of everything, yeah. So favorable legislation is one thing. You know, countries, for example, Serbia, I'll take it in, uh, an example of Serbia. With that last year, they introduced uh, their crypto regulations. I hate saying crypto, but I have to. Crypto regulations and not favorable at all. They they have capital gains tax. Uh, they make it difficult for uh, for um, existing companies and new companies to regain or gain their, gain their licenses. Really not good. This is you know it's backwards. It's it's just gonna it's just going to uh, push push away the fastest growing industry to another to another country. So I think in that situation, with service situations, to go back to the drawing board and you know have have conversations again with uh, with industry experts and with the regulators, and sit down and figure out what what is in best for both sides, and that's one conversation to have. You know, obviously, to for me, the main points there is to get rid of capital gains, to uh, to protect people's right to hold their private keys and to run nodes peacefully and. Yeah, capital gains to make it treated like a currency itself, and I think though that's really important. But with other aspects, is uh, like mining. That's another area. It's to work on the whole energy. You know, Bitcoin's also an energy, um, an energy revolution. So to go find where uh, grids out there with stranded energy and to uh, to reinforce them with Bitcoin mining. Well, I shouldn't call it mining anymore. I had a I had a good chat with uh, Pierre Rochard, and he likes to not, he likes to. To say that Bitcoin mining actually, according to the white paper, it's uh, time stamping. 
because he's trying to reframe certain ideas yeah, exactly. like he's saying you're ex- you're actually extending the chain of blocks and it's time stamping rather than mining and it's time chain as opposed to blockchain and things like that so <laughs> so yeah we're gonna help other countries to to time, time to, to get into time stamping and you know secure their grids as well have conversations there's opportunity there all in south america and in and in, in and in africa you know a lot of hydro hydroelectric dams are being opened up um there's a lot of coal usage around in these countries as well and to to sort of clean that up as well you know if you add bitcoin mining to that you you also produce some revenue to try and help you go to something a bit cleaner obviously not to not to solar or wind we know the the problems there but uh it's there's a lot of things that we can work on. Yes, ideally it would be to go and make them uh, introduce it as a legal tender, but that doesn't always have to be a legal tender yet. You know, we will get there eventually. Right. And I think probably what's really needed is just merely the removal of the capital gains tax, yeah. right? It doesn't necessarily have to yeah. be the legal tender. That's it. Um, but I mean, people, I guess people have kind of conflated those two concepts in their mind um when actually we maybe we could disaggregate those and i i know even with el salvador with bitcoin law article 7 was a little bit controversial amongst libertarians because they were saying oh this is like forced acceptance now look in practice i think very few actual merchants in el salvador were like forced to accept bitcoin but that was part of the discussion right i mean yeah i mean look i think in el salvador the uh people some people argued that it was too much of a top down approach but They've, they've adopted Bitcoin and you can still use the US dollar. You have options. So it's not like you have to use Bitcoin there. But it's, it's working. As far as I'm concerned, it's working. And, you know, this is something that we want to look, work to work is, uh, is, is showing that when, when you adopt Bitcoin, you can also continue using the, the fiat system, the currency as well. You know, fiat currency can also work on the Bitcoin rails, the Bitcoin railway system, I guess, which makes things life a lot cheaper for the individuals. So when there's for remittance is one massive thing, you know, um, there's billions of dollars. I think it's 300. I'm, I'm just quoting a figure more and a, a rough figure, but I think going into the South, going to, 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 to South America from, uh, from around the world is about $350 billion in remittance every year. And a lot of that is uh, is taken away through fees. Bitcoin can take away that. Um, this is another area that uh, Jan three is going to be working. We have a product, the uh, Aqua Wallet, that was designed in Blockstream that Samson helped to uh, to design, and that that will help Latin America. It's a good wallet that has um, that also has uh, supports USDT as well, and it has Liquid and Lightning attached to it as well. And this is. Things like this are really easy to just download for individuals and they can start receiving money from abroad for almost nothing. Um, these things can really start helping people to get their hands dirty, to start realizing that they, that they that getting into Bitcoin is really easy. And there's where the, you know, the, the, the adoption comes from bottom up, but from a top-down perspective, what we're trying, what we're trying to do, but also we're also doing bottom-up stuff as well. But from the bottom, the top-down perspective is we're trying to make sure that governments understand that people want this technology, and if you help facilitate it, that government, that individual, those politicians who do it will uh, will be uh, will be remembered kindly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Will be doing a massive difference for the rest for for the for their country for uh, for the rest of time and yeah and also just to stop them having that hammered down and hammering down Bitcoin because if they do that they're just gonna they're just they're just 
perpetrating the, the, the problems that many, many billions of people around the world are just ex- having to ex- um, live through every day. Back to the show in a moment. Bitbird.io is your Bitcoin dashboard. You can use this to periodically check a range of things, whether that's the price or other Bitcoin network statistics. You can see things like sats per dollar. Those of us trying to live on the Bitcoin standard, we need to be able to think in terms of sats or at least try to do some quick conversion so we know how many sats we're spending or receiving. Bitbo.io also has things like a Bitcoin magazine feed, as well as projected halving dates and all kinds of useful statistics to keep an eye on the ecosystem. So I think this is a great one to use either as a homepage or just to bookmark or just periodically check in through the day. That website is bitbo.io. That's B-I-T-B-O dot I-O. Coinkite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware signing device, the Cold Card. The Cold Card is a versatile tool It comes in a little calculator-looking package. You can spin it up in all kinds of different modes. You can use it with NFC. You can use it with a micro SD card. Or if you're a beginner, you can directly plug it to the computer. Now, you can use it easily with wallets like Sparrow Wallet. And I really like the cold card's versatility and all the different security features that it offers. The newest version, the MK4, has two secure elements. It's got improved CPU and memory. It allows you to sign bigger transactions, and this might be really handy for you if you have a lot of UTXOs in your Bitcoin wallet. So if you're interested to get yours, go to coinkite.com. Use the code LAVERA for a discount on your cold cards. And finally, Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital are offering concierge onboarding into a multi-signature vault. What does that mean? It means you can separate the Bitcoin keys that control your coins into different locations. This can give you that additional peace of mind when you sleep at night, knowing that your coins are not vulnerable to one single attack, that you would need to be compromised in multiple ways to lose your coins. Now, Unchained Capital can make this easy. They've got a concierge onboarding program where they will guide you through the process of setup and withdrawing the coins from your exchange into your vault. That website is unchained.com slash concierge or just go to unchained.com click concierge, use the code Levera for a discount on your concierge onboarding program. And now back to the show. So fair to say then it's, it's some combination of things like advocacy, lobbying, but also technology play to sort of demonstrate and give them perhaps some ideas around here's some technology that you could use to sort of either show because and I think this is an interesting idea as well, right? Like just if we look at the, the example of micro strategy, Michael Saylor had to first orange pill himself, right? Listening to the podcasts, reading Safetyne, reading the bullish case for Bitcoin, you know, reading Parker Lewis's gradually, then suddenly. And then he orange pilled himself. And only then could he, you know, go and orange pill his, his board, his yes. C-level yes. and, you know, do that move at a company level. So I think it's the same kind of idea, even at a country level. You might need to orange pill a few influential people before you can uh, get the rest of them. Yes, exactly. And let, look, look where he is right now. They're, if we're not careful, that he's going to buy all the he's going to buy all the Bitcoin out there. But it's <laughs> impossible, impossible. But this is it. That's it. It's those those you know. If, as soon as you, education is the other key is the other key area. I think um, you know through Michael Saylor saying that you need to have if you haven't studied Bitcoin for at least a hundred hours, then you you, you don't have uh, any. You're, it's not worth you to talking about Bitcoin, and it's totally true. People talk, you know, we first tell someone about Bitcoin and they come up with their reasons against it. And it's like, do you know anything else? I mean, how long? But they've only just not read it on, on, in, the media, in the media, in the mainstream through some FUD and stuff. So it's like, okay, no, no, go back. Let's, I'll help you read it again and then we can talk. 
um, I think it's important we teach people what, what the what the history of money is, what um, and how easy it is to use Bitcoin, and how Bitcoin solves so many so many of the, so many problems. So yeah, education conversations are are key to all levels, from from top down, bottom up. Right, and so when it comes to nation states, then are you also looking at this idea of similar to El Salvador hodling some Bitcoin on the nation state balance sheet, or is that is that an idea you're trying to pursue as well? Yes, I mean yes, having on your treasury would be ideal. So to try and teach them that Bitcoin is the safest and securest asset ever discovered for for savings technology ever discovered. And so for nations to have that on their balance sheet and also for individuals to have that on, on their balance sheet, companies to have that on their balance sheet as well. So yeah, uh, we will be helping to facilitate that as well. Right. And I think at a time when we're seeing people seizing each other's assets or countries or companies, I think that's that's probably the best time to be teaching people about the ethos of Bitcoin and self-custody. So that can obviously be part of the story that you're teaching as well. Yes, I mean Bitcoin is freedom. I, I think I said that on my on the show on Ivan Ivanovich show and um, back in March, and that I really really mean that from from my heart. You know, really it helps people's individual sovereignty, and it's really important for um, for people to hold their own keys of their own private keys, their own wealth that they can store. Yes, they can hold it on their phone, but then they can hold it in cold storage, or they can you know they can hold those keys in their head, and that really is. Um, profound that's you know that you can actually hold your wealth in your head uh, technically i mean it's it's such a beautiful thing learning about this and it really blows my mind about this you know it's I, every time i'm learning more about bitcoin just uh, I'm, I'm always finding those uh, those head blowing you know head blown moments you know like recently i read um Knut's book uh, you know everything divided by 21 <laughs> And well, yeah, that's things, you know, books like that. It's just, it's just sorry, I'm deviating from the subject, but uh, I just want to say how beautiful it is learning about the philosophy side of Bitcoin. Right. Yeah, for sure. And so I'm also curious as well, because we were talking earlier about how some politicians or many politicians, in fact, are very short term minded in mm-hmm. their focus. So how do we get around that then? Because in some ways, obviously, you and I are Bitcoiners mm-hmm. and we are thinking we're trying to think long term. But how do you convince a politician to think long term when he or she is probably thinking about getting elected and number two, getting reelected? <laughs> yeah, good question. Very good question. Politicians, a lot of politicians exist so because it's their job. They have their career politicians. So how to get them to uh, to think about something that could actually threaten their job in the long term? Is, uh, is is very difficult, but they have to understand that you know, Bitcoin is uh, is intergenerational wealth, and you have and they have to say if you if you really care about doing good for your country for your for your people, then uh, then you should definitely consider Bitcoin as 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 that option. You know, Bitcoin solves so many problems that give you the job that you have today. You know, you have the power or the or the influence now to uh, to change people's lives by helping people understand that um, the money that they we've all been dealing with for the last hundred years is uh, is broken it doesn't really mean anything and if anything it's uh, it's created um, you know it's 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 created so many of our world's problems so yeah how to convince a politician that uh, 
is I think it's 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 through I mean the incentives you have to give them incentives saying that you know that you will be making money as well on the side with Bitcoin your family will be better off as well but not just that but the people that you served family I say people you served that we that you know they serve the politicians should be serving us their their wealth will be better protected going to the future you will be leaving a better a better future a better a better civilization you know families will be more comfortable to uh, to have more children to uh, to get into productive jobs, to uh, to do um, beautiful things, not to just work for the sake of working, work for the sake of, uh, of 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 living a beautiful. I mean, yeah, I can go on about this, but I think you get my point. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think I agree with you, and I think what we're going to see in practice is some are good and some are bad, yeah. right? And some will, uh, you know. I, I think I understand that you know President Bekele of El Salvador did take some criticism. Uh, look, there's always going to be criticism, but yep. it could have been a lot worse, right? Like the way he did things, he could have started his own shitcoin. He could have uh, been like very open to the crypto people, like, and uh, you know, credit to them, they were bit relatively they were Bitcoin only, and yep. so you know, th- I think that's that's interesting, right? Whereas if you rewind the clock, you know, prior to the El Salvador thing, like three or four years ago, there was this Venezuela, and they started their own shitcoin, right? They had this Petro shitcoin. And, you know, other countries and things like this were just very, very much flirting with random altcoins. And so I, I think there's there's something to that um, or another, maybe another quote unquote bad example even I, I noticed in recent years is the Ukraine example, right? So Ukraine, when the Russia-Ukraine war started, they were asking for Bitcoin donations. So they were saying, yeah, yeah, please give us your Bitcoin to help us, you know, fund this uh, effort. And okay, that's interesting Um from a Bitcoin narrative perspective, but then here's the downside. At one point, they were actually banning Ukrainians from buying Bitcoin with the uh, Ukrainian Hrvona, or their, their currency, the UAH currency, right? So it's kind of like, you know, in some cases, we'll see politicians and you know people in power say, hey, Bitcoin for me, but not for yeah. thee, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of, you know, it's the same parallel that we see even with like this, you know, the carbon hysterics, right? Because they say, oh, I'm going to fly to Davos in the mountains of Switzerland on a private jet, but you, you plebs, you're not allowed to do what you know the elite, these elite people will say. And so I think that's you know we're going to see some good and some bad. I'm curious what you think. Yeah. Well, no, right now in El Salvador, going back to El Salvador, it's, um, look, you can um, you can criticize it being too much of a top-down approach, but um, look what's happening to the economy there. It's it's flourishing now. GDP up. GDP is up uh, in um, like I think I think this year it's up about six or seven, eight percent or something. I don't know the numbers. I'm I'm just ballparking there, but around that. Um, this is driven mainly through tourism. You know, El Salvador uh, five six years ago, not many people could actually point uh, point at Salvador on the map. And then President Bukele gets elected um, because he's not corruptible because he comes from wealth himself. He was able to dismantle or not dismantle, but Break deals with uh, the cartel leaders there and turn El Salvador, which was one of the murder capitals in the world, into one of the into into a safe place. And then, thanks to Bitcoin, now tourists are going there. And not only that, he's actually the country is open for um, for other national other nationalities to move there as well. And he, people are moving there because of the because of the Bitcoin legal tender. People are able to go there, and it's I mean, it's, obviously, it's not too expensive, but people can go there and. Bring their Bitcoin, bring their wealth, and start a comfortable life there. Uh, I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, 
other countries should be following a suit. I mean, other countries would be like, well, you know, I want that for my for my country. So yeah, I think smaller countries, like I say, El Salvador is about six million people. I mean, I don't think that's small, but countries of that size, which which have like more homogeneous uh, populations, are able to make quicker decisions. Would would should follow? I mean, I mean, thinking about it, they should follow a suit if they if they're uh, if the politicians are, are correctly advised. Yeah, and hopefully we do see that. And I think it's also interesting that it's like it. It reminds me a little bit of the Clayton Christensen's uh, innovators dilemma, right? So there are certain countries where maybe they're just in a position where it's too difficult for them to turn the ship, right? And so. Yeah. Of course, we can. We're trying. We'll, we'll try, we, everyone should be trying to do what they can. But there are certain countries where maybe it's like trying to turn this big cruise liner, and you can't. They're not as nimble. Whereas, like, let's say the smaller and some of the medium-sized countries, maybe yeah. they're a little bit more agile, or maybe they're a challenger nation, and they've got more to more to prove, something to prove, more to fight for, and maybe they're more willing to Correct. Uh, yeah. try yeah. something that's a bit more out there. And maybe that's where this uh, idea of Bitcoin legal tender comes into play. Hopefully. Yeah, exactly. And also, yeah, and going back to 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 one of our previous topics is capital gains tax. Anyone who gets rid of the capital gains tax and allows Bitcoin to transact freely is essentially adopting uh, Bitcoin as illegal tender. I mean that if that will then incentivize small businesses to say, you know, we accept Bitcoin, and you know, whether small businesses accept Bitcoin, then they will come. Bitcoiners will go there. This is the beautiful thing about Bitcoin: it's that network, that, that effect that has. And when people see a Bitcoin, Bitcoin accepting cafe or butchery or so and so shop, people will go there and say, "Hey, look!" Then they will go and help that that place out. Yeah, it works. <laughs> so yeah, getting rid of capital gains tax is 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 really important. I, I I think. Yeah. So actually, I'm curious then if you had to, I don't know if you've thought deeply about this or not, but if you had to stack rank them or in terms of most important, let's say governmental policies that helps Bitcoin, right? Is it mining? Is it holding someone on the balance sheet? Is it taking away the capital gains tax? Is it legal tender? What's the most important thing from a nation state adoption point of view? Depends on the jurisdiction, but I think number one will probably, my, my opinion is probably removing cap, capital gains tax and allowing the money to, to transact freely because that will, that will actually, Bitcoin will flourish doing its bottom-up thing, which is designed to do. But then, yeah, then countries that have uh, energy, considerable amounts of energy and especially countries that have um, poorly infrastructured energy, then that, you know, mining in those countries, really essential. And what else? I mean, and on balance sheets, just as important. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think already, you know, about I think central banks already have they're probably they weren't going to tell they're not going to tell us, but they, they already have I'm sure of it. I mean, they, they have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. If Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a threat to central banking, so you know the logical the logical hedge, insurance hedge against that threat is to actually own the thing that's threatening you. So it's to own Bitcoin. So if you have like one, if you think of it as like a one percent threat, you own one percent of your balance sheet on Bitcoin, or it's like ten percent, ten percent balance sheet on Bitcoin. But I wouldn't be surprised if central banks already own a lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> So I don't know. You know, that's a fascinating idea, and I'm curious how they would get around it, like from a disclosures point of view, because wouldn't they like a lot of them have to put out annual reports and show, okay, this is how many foreign, how much foreign currency we have. But I, I'm curious, maybe they find a way to hide it somewhere. I don't know. 
maybe not the, uh, the, the, the more uh, transparent Western nations, but maybe your uh, Saudi Arabia's and I don't know, maybe the, the, the feds in the US, you know, then it's not a public, it's not a public country, the Federal, uh, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, that's private. We don't know what's really what they're holding. We know how much cash they have, but uh, I know I'm not the expert there, but I presume other central banks in less transparent countries have to have it. And it's easy to hide with, with a few accounting techniques. I mean, that's how the world works. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, going back to our stack ranking. So I would say, so do you, I think we probably agree then. I think number one most important thing if you know, on our wish list is removing capital gains tax on Bitcoin and allowing people to freely spend it, save it, etc. That's a legal tender without being a legal tender. Yeah. Right, right. And so then probably second or third, what would you say like uh, engaging in mining or would you say maybe just like opening up the market for Bitcoin mining or um, I don't know, maybe uh, stuff around the freedoms required, right? Like, you know, uh, we saw recently uh, the um, like the tornado cash thing with the developer mm. getting arrested by the Netherlands financial police, basically, or financial crime unit or something. I, I guess uh, having that freedom for developers to be able to contribute code uh, probably is also an important factor yeah. Yeah, in, that's true. in the overall Bitcoin adoption story. So that's probably an important aspect also. And I mean, some would argue in America, you know, the right of freedom of speech can arguably play into that too. Yeah. I think another point is to uh, to crack down on shit coins, <laughs> <laughs> to to make a law that you know uh, differentiate differentiating Bitcoin from uh, other cryptos. I mean, it's if once you start once you start learning about it, you only need ten, you only need an hour or two of learning. Okay, depending on each individual, but you realize that both are completely different. So, and that um, um, you know, you want to protect people because that's most shit coiners. Most ninety nine percent of them are are rug pulls to be. So. Yeah, protection, protection from from kids, from kids. I say kids, sorry, from from people from from shitcoin. But no, I mean that's half jokes. Uh, I would say no. I would say yeah. I'd say going back to mining. Yeah, it's it's not not something that I'm very uh, very clued up on on the mining thing. I've never actually seen a mining rig operation happening. So I mean, I met miners before. I mean, I've, I've met like for example Pierre Rochard and some other people. And what I understand about mining is it's is that you know it's the whole en- the energy fud thing, which which I sort of believed in five years ago, which now after studying realized that actually no, it uh, it actually incentivizes uh, energy revolution for for cleaner energy and for um, for more efficient use of energy for hydrocarbons, which are very essential. We need hydrocarbons to exist and to continue existing, and we're not going to do without them if we want to move to the second uh, phase of our of our um, of our civilization. So. Any way to make mining, Bitcoin mining only, Bitcoin timestamping only, open, available, and what you know in, in in the country, I think very important. Yeah, and speaking of all of the FUD lines, I'm curious. This is probably something that you will have to engage with quite often in your discussions with people because I'm sure you'll hear the same lines, right? Like, oh, it's uh, it's dirty money laundering. It's uh, you know, it's using too much energy. It's you know, etc. So, what what do you see as the best response in those kinds of cases right because i'm sure you're talking to somebody who is relatively new how do you uh, best deal with people who say oh okay bitcoin's going to enable you know terrorism financing or something well, like that yeah the, well that's the thing people hopefully that's that's uh, that's over by now that bitcoin is good for criminal activity i mean they don't realize that you know there's an open ledger there it's probably one of the worst things to use for criminal activity 
yes, there's the privacy things or, or concern around it, but uh, no, Bitcoin is not it's not good for 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 using as uh, for uh, for money laundering and stuff like that. It's 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 not very good at all. The dollar, the fiat, is much better for that. So I mean, that's that's a pretty easy bunk, I think, for other people. But yeah. uh, the other thing is, yeah, the energy thing. It's easy because you then tell them about uh, you know that it's actually if you look at it in a um, in a counterintuitive way, why it needs to use that much energy and how that actually solves the energy uh, energy crisis, then people start to open their eyes. And that's another easier bunk, but it still requires a little bit of thought, more thought. What's the other thing I get? Uh, oh, yeah, I get some people like, oh, I'd, I've had a, lot, a few times, oh, I like to hold my money, the money in my hand. You know, I like to feel the weight of my money. They want the tangible. The tangible yeah. access. Well, I say that's true with gold. You know, you can actually hold a weight in your, of, of money in a gold. But when it came to transporting it over time and space and, and actually entrusting someone to, uh, to, 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 hold, to, you know, to hold it for you in, the, in, in a reserve, in a, reserve in, a, in a treasury, that's where the corruption came in. And they're like, oh, yeah, I see. But no, no, I like to get, well, I'm sure in the future there'll be ways of, uh, <laughs> of holding your Bitcoin. But well, what- you know, like the Open Dime or, you know, Sats card and things like that. But obviously, they're, yeah, they're not quite the same. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And then, you know, I go to tell them, well, you know, with the money that you're holding right now, that piece of paper, you know, do you think it's backed by gold? Some people do think it's backed by gold. Some people still to this day think it's backed by gold. I did maybe seven, eight years ago. No, maybe about 10 years ago. When you realize that the pound is not backed by gold, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, <laughs> people do think it's backed by gold. <laughs> they don't have. They don't. Know, yeah. They don't know what happened in 1971. They don't know what happened in 1913. Actually, it was you know around then when uh, things went horribly wrong. Yeah, when the Federal Reserve is yeah. created and all the different uh, monetary standards yeah, yeah. that we've gone through. Of course, one of the best books on this is uh, Murray Rothbard's book, "What Has Government Done to Our Money." It's a nice short read for anyone yeah. who hasn't. Any listeners, if you haven't checked that out, it's free over at Mises.org. Um, and I think the other big one you'll get is the volatility, right? So they'll say, oh, Bitcoin is so volatile. Why would I use it? That's another big one. It's like, oh, right now in Serbia, I'm like, oh, yeah, they like to ask me questions now about Bitcoin because they say, oh, Bitcoin's crashed. I'm like, yes, so? <laughs> well, are you still are you still happy? I was like, oh, no. no. He's like, oh, are you still happy? I was like, yep, yeah, I'm, um, I'm buying more now. <laughs> But but it's crashed. I was like, no, no, the fundamentals are still there and actually stronger. You know, then now is a good time to buy, and it's always been a good buy, good time to buy. And then I tell them about DCA, which you know, dollar cost averaging. You know, you buy once every week or so at the same time, and over time that gives you uh, gives you a good entry price, and you just set that on uh, on automatic purchases, and that just you don't have to worry about anything. But also at the same time, it shows that Bitcoin is, is volatile because it's still in its infancy and, as well. And that's exciting for investors as well because it shows that it's, it's, it's growing. You know, you can't grow without volatility. Volatility is, 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 is necessary. Bitcoin's only had about 10, truly about 10 years of network effect. And it's growing all the time. So, of course, you're going to get a lot of volatility. But that volatility is going up more than down. And, yeah. That's that's exciting, right? And as uh, also even with you know Aqua and stuff like that, having access to USDT potentially. I mean, that's that's part of the argument, I guess, is to see whether stablecoins can help for for those people who are in that sort of maybe they're curious or open minded, but they just can't hack the volatility. Okay, so in that case, that's the argument. Would they would they benefit from using yes. liquid USDT as an example? Yes. Yes, and then hopefully they could transition over. I guess that's the hope is that they could then come over into Bitcoin, and theoretically, I mean, there are even non KYC swap 
markets and providers and things like this where people can like swap their USDT into Bitcoin. Like let's say now they're, they're reading, you know, they're reading Safety, they're listening to my podcast, they're, li- they're listening to you, they're talking to you or whatever. And now they're like, yeah, actually, I want to hold some Bitcoin. Okay, I need to, I need to change my tether into, you know, Bitcoin. Maybe that's, maybe that's the way it goes. Well, exactly. I mean, to have a wallet that you're able to go from one to another, I think it's, that's really useful. I and mean, the fact that you have a wallet, even if you want to hold USDT, you're still getting training on how to have a wallet, holding something in there that's protected by you. you it's, your keys as, it's your keys as well. It's your money. Yeah, it's not the right money, but uh, it's, it's yours. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, th- I wonder what kinds of trade-offs will be made over time in terms of growing the numbers, right, of people, right? And I guess... It's, there is like perhaps a little bit of an eternal September here because it's like the eternal September problem. It's this idea that because there are a lot of new people coming in and they don't quite all, they, they don't necessarily all share that same ethos of, let's say, some earlier Bitcoiners. And so I think how can the tooling be made? How can the education be done? How can the culture be such that people who are new can sort of be inculcated with the Bitcoin ethos, the Bitcoin values, as opposed mm. to just trying to, recreate the fiat system right yeah i mean education i think i think i'm answering your question right with uh, with this is um you know just getting in just downloading a wallet and getting your hands dirty is the best education you can do learning how to use bitcoin and the technology since i've been around has gotten um it's gotten much easier to use and it's going to get much easier to use it's yeah i think i think i think people should just really just just try it out (laughs) yeah what else can I say? Yeah, I think I think it is. It comes down to learning by doing for many people. Um, it's yeah. easy to talk about things, um, but it really comes down to actually doing things in practice. And I think that's really that's really where the rubber meets the road. And I think what happens for a lot of people, mm. at least in my experience, is there are people who might have you know spoken about things, or maybe they haven't really actually tried to put it into practice. And I think that's that's perhaps that's also part of the culture as well is to sort of reject LARPing mm. and reject sort of just talking about things without really being about it. And so I think maybe that's maybe that's where things are going to go. Yeah. I mean, really, at the end of the day, the simplicity of Bitcoin, it's really its beauty. Um, when people learn about it as an inflation hedge, what people think, okay, right now, it's the, inf- the inflation hedge is broken. Yeah, but okay, maybe in the last six months, it, you can argue against that. But uh, no, if you look back historically for the last uh, five years, if you hold Bitcoin for five years, as you would do with... Um, or more for 10 years or more that's investing in, um, horizon you know for savings it's going to keep on going up and to have that option to use to have your dollars or fiat and stuff and then go into 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 bitcoin to to protect from inflation is it's beautiful really i mean just knowing that there're only ever going to be 21 million to me that is just uh, it's something that's going to change humanity for the better and i also wonder i think this is something I, i've theorized about and thought about for a while is that I, I genuinely do believe that it will change the way governments are and it'll 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 essentially make them smaller um because they won't be able to fund things as cheaply uh it'll take a while for that effect to happen uh, yes. it's not going to happen tomorrow but uh, yeah i'm curious what you think about that like do you believe that it will actually change the institutions of society in, in a sense well yes i th- i think and i hope it will institutions from Money itself is to to health institution, to education, to uh, um, education. As I said, education. Sorry, it's it's they're, they're completely corrupt at the at the moment. Um, infrastructure, everything. They're just creating projects because they can fund because they can print this money, 
and it's just for the sake of creating jobs that we don't really need and it's a waste it's a waste of resource a waste of time and everything and i think people are starting to wake up to that and when you when you go back if you go back to hard money non-inflationary uh, deflationary money like bitcoin then people will will want will uh will be frugal about how to spend their money and how to how to fund projects and this is where we will finally have proper uh sustainable business plans not just short-term thinking that just makes things for the hell of making them and then they break a couple of years later and then you have to make another one because that's the business model things like you know i things like that so and going to politicians yeah i think the politicians who embrace bitcoin know and who understand bitcoin know very well that uh the future there will be less jobs for politicians in the future <laughs> i hope that's the case <laughs> yeah so it may be in a sense there's a few of them who realize that's that you know if, if they've got a good nose or a good you know ear to the ground they can see okay this is the way things are going it's better to at least ride this wave for what we possibly can as opposed to trying to stop this thing because yes. you can't really stop this thing i mean i mean this is a call out to all politicians is uh you know if you wanted to make a change for the future and be seen as a hero like you've always wanted to be seen as a hero because a lot of politicians are in there for uh for the publicity as well they want to help people but they like the stage and say you know make a difference for humanity and uh, and, and and push for bitcoin adoption because history will remember you very kindly yeah i think that's a great spot to finish so uh politicians make sure you uh make a difference for humanity so uh uh philip where can people find you and uh jan3 uh jan3 is can be found on uh, twitter it's just at jan3 i think uh yeah so it's jan3.com is the um jan3.com is the website there um but yeah philip thank you for joining me today and uh yeah oh and sorry and your and your um if people want to find any of your stuff my Twitter is uh, at Prince Philip, but that's P-R-I-N-C-F-I-L-I-P, the certain way of spelling it. Okay, got it. It's Philip with an F, guys. All right, Philip, thank you for joining me. And both Jan, sorry, Jan 3 and mine, uh, we do have uh, Instagram as well, but you'll be able to find them as well. Okay, <laughs> great. Thank you. All right, thanks. So what do you think? Should Bitcoin adoption be driven only from the bottom up or should it also be driven from the top down? Let me know what you think and get the show notes over at stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.